I remember when I arrived in the U.S., the bright lights of New York City. We arrived at night at JFK. I was so amazed as a 13-year-old. Oh my God, this is the land of the free. I was so excited to be here. I thought the buildings do not get this tall in Antigua, ever. I was so elated and it was so great to be there. But then the next morning when I woke up, oh, okay, I'm in an apartment. I didn't know what an apartment was before, but thank God I used to watch the Jeffersons. I didn't understand apartment style living because in Antigua, we all got a house. And I'm like, why aren't we in a house? My name is Carol Tungmack. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we are talking to Carol Tong Mack, Assistant Dean of Academic Services for the College of Arts and Science at the University of Cincinnati. Carol's also the author of About Being Bernadette, From Polite Silence to Finding the Black Girl Magic Within, which is not something I know how to do because I don't have a black girl within me. <laughs> I think we all have a black girl within us. I think that's the point of the story. I think absolutely. And this idea of polite silence We don't talk about it till probably halfway or the end of this one, but Mm -hmm. it's something I've always known about Carol. Carol's a friend of my sister. Hi, sister. Who listens to this? I have to say, Raman's sister, we so appreciate you listening to our podcast. And all of Raman's sister's friends. Oh, yes. All of of you guys, too. (laughs) When I used to visit my sister when she lived in Cincinnati, and I'd go back because I used to live there, too. You know, she made all these friends. Cincinnati got cool after I left. And my sister met Carol. And how did they meet? My sister taught in the med school. At got UC. it. Yeah, yeah. Cool. I'm cool. guessing. I actually don't know. But cool. Carol is one of the most authentic people you will ever meet. And the energy, I didn't know enough about her story back then. And I still don't know enough about her story now. You, know, you pick up bits and pieces. I you know, did a little bit of research on her book before we finally got the chance to talk. But she's led a life. And her optimism, And refusal to kind of compromise Mm -hmm. is just, I need to be more like that. (laughs) That's what I take away from the conversation. Yeah. I think what I took away was she has this drive to, to both succeed, but also to give back at the same time. And you'll hear about this in the show, but you know, she has a experience early on in her, in her college years. And it's, interesting to me that now that is, that's where she situated herself professionally, but also as she writes her, her memoir, her book, she, she talks a lot about that experience as well of her, of her experiences in college and, and how she's kind of that moment in her life, which really kind of, I think, shaped everything that happened afterwards has also had a halo effect on other now current college students, because she is doing so much to serve that community within her school. So It was kind of this interesting, as she was talking, it made me realize like everything kind of comes full circle in many ways and something might be happening to you at this moment that will definitely affect your own trajectory. But in that same moment in someone else's life, like you can make that same impact for somebody else. Yeah. And not to spoil too much, but there's some deep cuts from the seventies and nineties. Oh yeah. 
One's oh, yeah. pretty green and one's got pretty awesome hair. So, uh, <laughs> and there's you know, a mention of jello shots too. So stick around for that. <laughs> we're such grown ups. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our friend Carol. Carol, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you both. Yeah. So, Carol, I think you're becoming infamous. You're obviously an accomplished academic. You've got a book that kind of tells your story, but I want to talk about some stuff that maybe people don't know. Can you can you tell us a story from when you were a kid, when you were coming up? Well, I was raised by my grandmother, well, my grandparents, but my grandmother was the force behind everything. And so the story I would probably want to tell is more about kindness, if that's okay with you. No, we hate kindness. We're anti-kindness. <laughs> I'm all about kindness on this show, Carol. See, well, of you're- course, like I didn't realize as a child, it was showing me kindness until, of course, I became an adult, right? So there was this woman who lived nearby, but not so, she was not so close by to us. But my grandmother always told us, well, me, of course, to go take Miss Mary. I'm just going to make up a name right now. Miss Mary, go take her some, some dinner. And so I would, she asked me so many times to do it. I'm thinking, why do I have to go take her dinner? Meanwhile, Miss Mary, she lived in a small house by herself. There were times that because she was by herself and she could not walk, literally as I stepped onto to her steps to give her the food, I can literally smell the pee and everything bodily going on because she couldn't walk. She couldn't go to the bathroom by herself. So it took her a while. And I used to think, why do I have to go? Because literally, if I'm sitting at her door, I'm like, oh, gosh, I can smell everything. And so my grandmother sent me back there over and over and over again. And of course, as I became an adult, I had to ask myself, why did she always have me go there? Because it's not just going and giving her the food. There were other instructions, like if she needs anything, make sure you do it. And I'm like, I hope she doesn't need anything. But of course she did, right? It was I know, I don't want to gross you all out, but it was to empty the, we had, it's like a pea pot. Yeah, it was to yeah. empty mm-hmm. the pea pot behind the house. And I was just like, why do I have to do it? But you know, I was there. So I did it, rinsed it out and gave it back to her. Or if she needed to get dressed a little bit, I got her dressed. And later on in my years, probably even when I was in my thirties or twenties, I thought, okay, this is what kindness looks like. It's because it's not about you. It wasn't about me at the time. It was about helping somebody else who could not help themselves. And I'm really glad my grandmother taught me that acts of kindness re- was really about others. And so that's just one story about growing up with my grandmother, who, who was just the kindest woman that I know. She was very patient. She was, of course, absolutely loving. And so that's my little story today. How old were you when you first started going over to Miss Mary's oh, house? seven, eight, nine. I mean, I don't know if you know this, but in the Caribbean, they say that you grow up fast, which means you're doing more things as a child than an average American would do. So at eight years old, I, I knew how to cook right wow. there in this country. You don't really, there are a lot of rules about don't go near the stove, don't turn it on. There are all of these don'ts. Well, in my country, you better know how to do something. Sometimes it's taking care of your, your siblings. And so at eight years old, I think I knew how to definitely cook or make tea or do some other stuff. So yeah. That's impressive. My son is eight and he recently learned how to make microwave popcorn. So that that does, <laughs> <laughs> that 
that points out the difference between Americans versus the rest yeah, of the world. Yeah, it's, right? it's just a different, as you know, there are really a lot of cultural differences. And it's about, because you're done with high school in Antigua at 16, 17 years old. Mm, yeah. Right. And you start your life. So a lot of people don't go to college because they can't afford it. Some do, and then some don't. So you're really starting your life at 16, 17 years old. So by eight or nine, you should know how to do something, right? Yeah. How old were you when you left Antigua? I want to say I was about maybe 13 years old, if I can remember correctly. I would say I was about 13 when I left Antigua to, to live in the U.S. Where'd you go? So my mom was already here and she lived in the Bronx. So when we left, we, meaning my sister and I, my sister Lisa, we went to the South Bronx. So I grew up in the South Bronx. So you're a New Yorker. Yes, I am. And absolutely <laughs> love it. And absolutely love it. That's awesome. I grew up in the city. Oh, where? Yeah. I was born and raised in Lower Manhattan. So my parents still live down there. They live right by the South Street Seaport. Mm -hmm. And I was in New York up until about a month ago. So my whole life I lived there. And now I moved out to California. So Remen likes to say I left him because yeah, <laughs> I'm abandoned. I'm the only person left in this, the tri-state area. Oh, gosh. But Carol, when you got here, I mean... Impressions of a 13-year-old leaving the island life, going to the Bronx, what was that like for you? Or what was the biggest difference that you noticed immediately upon, I guess, arriving in JFK or Newark? What I remember like it was not yesterday, but maybe a couple of years ago when I arrived in the U.S. because it was so bright. You hear about the bright lights of New York City. So we arrived in the evening or at night at JFK. And I was like, wow, I was so amazed as a 13-year-old right? Thinking, like, oh my God, this is the land of the free, right? Because that's what you hear. That's what people tell you. That's what others would say to us when they came back to visit. And so I was so excited to be here. And I remember getting a cab. My mom was there. My sister was there. We're getting a, either we got a cab or we got a ride. I don't remember, but we were going home and I just saw all of these tall buildings. And I thought, man, the buildings do not get this tall in Antigua ever, right? And so I was so just elated about these tall buildings and the bright lights. And it was so great to be there. But then the next morning when I woke up, you get to go outside. And I was like, oh, okay. I'm in an apartment. I didn't know what an apartment was before, but thank God I used to watch the Jeffersons, right? So I knew what an apartment <laughs> kind of was. And so, but I, I didn't really understand the whole apartment style living because I grew up in a house. Everybody in Antigua, we all got a house. And I'm like, why do we have to be here? Why aren't we in a house? And so that took me a little while to get over. But just kind of walking on the streets of the Bronx is really not what I thought it was. It wasn't this nice neighborhoody type of place, right? I think my imagination got the worst of me. So when you're in a different country, your idea of America is very different based on what you see on TV. So at least for me, watching TV, they didn't show you any horrific things or bad things. It was always great things that we saw about growing up in New York. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to separate Manhattan from the South Bronx. When you saw bright lights of New York City or pictures of New York City, you saw all these great things. You didn't see somebody like in their apartment living day by day. So it was just very different to kind of walk the streets of New York City. It, it wasn't what I expected. And how would you say you're different from that 13-year-old girl now. Oh, gosh. I'm so glad I'm not as naive as, a, as that 13-year-old girl used to be. I think just any teenager, right? You don't know anything differently. So 
I'm just like, oh, we're supposed to be here in an apartment. And then you learn so much about the neighborhood. You learn so much about growing up, the differences between growing up in, let's say, I don't know, maybe midtown Manhattan and growing up in the South Bronx, two completely different things. Or growing up in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey, is very different than growing up in the South Bronx. And so I'm just glad I'm not as naive. I've learned a lot. I've been in this country over 30 something years and I've learned a lot by being here. And a lot of that was, of course, due to the neighborhood, but also going away to college was a big difference because I went from the Bronx in New York City to Vermont to go to college. So yeah, so that was a different, completely different experience. So I'm glad I had that experience. What did you study in college? And where did you go to school? Of course. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont. I hear there's a really large Caribbean community there. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) A community of one. (laughs) I know, right? I know. But you know what? We had a couple of Caribbean folks there. We had people from Trinidad. We had folks from Jamaica, from different St. Vincent, you know, some from different islands. So actually, we had a a Caribbean student association. Okay. So it was all right. It was all right. So yes, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, small liberal arts school. And I studied history. I literally thought I wanted to do something in the sciences, but then I started taking a couple of history classes and enjoyed that more. But also calculus didn't like me at all. I started taking calculus and I'm like, I don't know what this foreign language is. I failed it the first time I took it. And I was like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to take this again. And so I decided history was my thing because I just love studying history and kind of learning about my own culture. And so I majored in history, but I focused on Latin America and the Caribbean. Yeah, because that was going to be my dumb question. It's when someone says they studied history, if you're studying at Middlebury, is it New England history, American (laughs) history? (laughs) It's all of it, right? Really. So when you study history, they give you everything. And then you can decide, okay, what's the subcategory? What do I want to focus on? And so I wanted to focus on the Caribbean because I think there were just so much to know, so much to learn. And I wanted to know things that I didn't know before. And so I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. Because as I tell my students now, you can't learn anything about anybody if you don't know anything about yourself. And so I'm really huge on studying about my own culture and history. Well, so fast forward to today, you're now, you're also in academia, right? You're Yes. Yes, I am. You are guiding young minds. And I guess, what do you see from yourself? when you were in Vermont and and the kids that you're responsible for today, not just your own kids, that's another topic completely. But like there's things you learned and probably hard lessons you had to learn, right? Can you kind of contrast your experience as a student and now yours as your assistant dean? You're in charge. Well, I don't know about all that, Raman. (laughs) Don't let the titles fool you, brother. Don't let the titles fool you. (laughs) I would say there are a couple of things that's different for me. And I really wanted to help young people. I would say after my first or second year of college, I knew that was my calling. So I don't, you've probably know this, or you've probably read or heard. I was one of those people who got pregnant my first year of college. And so at a school like Middlebury in Vermont, it's a small private liberal arts college, top 10 in the country. You don't get pregnant there. You know what? That's not what you do. And so I actually left for a year, had my daughter, and then came back to Middlebury to finish my degree. And so I just knew I had so much support. My friends in college supported me. I mean, I can't even tell you how much they supported me, as well as my college counselor. Her name is Miss Clokey, Dean Clokey. She was awesome. And so my friends supported me so much that when I was home having the baby, when I was home with her for that year, they used to call me from her office 
And so I thought, man, this is what support looks like because I felt like, yes, I know I'm not in college, but I felt the warmth and the support from the people there. I felt the warmth and support from my own guidance counselor in high school. Her name is Patricia Murphy, who's also, she's my life coach. We still connect up to this day. And so I just really wanted to help other young people in ways that others helped me and give them that extra love and support because I was a single mother briefly when I was in college. And it was just a devastating time in my life, right? When you you have this brand new baby freshman year and dad decided that it's not something he wanted to do. So you have to do something else. So my college friends became really that family that I needed as well as, of course, my own family, but my guidance comes from high school. And so I really wanted to help others kind of go through whatever it is, whether it's getting a college degree, going through whatever young people are going through at the time. I figured I wanted to help them through it because somebody helped me. Yeah. It reminds me of my own situation in some ways and how people will come together as long as you set your intention to get it done. So I went to graduate school and I was in my early 30s at the time, signed up for a pretty intense business school program. And halfway in, I got pregnant too. Mm. And I remember really trying to make that decision of, do I stay in school? Do I take the year off? I was also working full-time, so it was an executive program. So I had a full-time job. I was going to classes on the weekends And then there was this baby that was about to come that (laughs) we didn't really plan to do it in that order. That's right. That's right. I get it. It happened. And and my initial response was, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to have this baby and whatever. And my husband, who's a man, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious, I think, I mean, everyone's situation is different, but there's something I think when women are put into situations sometimes our automatic is to sometimes step back because we're like, oh, I, I don't know if I can handle all this. But then, and so he pushed me. He was like, Sharon, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. Like you are in the best school in the world. You can't, he was like, even if you were to off ramp and come back on, it's going to be a different group of people. He was going to be around. He's like, we've got family and all that stuff. He was like, trust me, if you, people are going to come and support this. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And I just, I felt so much It's almost like fear of the unknown, Mm -hmm. right? It's like being a new mom for the first time, not really being ready to be a new mom at that moment per se. Like I always knew I wanted to have kids, but not in the middle of business school. Not at that time. (laughs) That wasn't part of my life plan. And you chose to take a year off. You saw everyone come and support you. I chose to continue going, but same thing. Everyone just rallied. It was the baby would be with me sometimes in class and the instructors knew about it and that was fine. I had to, between classes, go and pump all the things that a new new mom needs to do. And this was a business program where most of my, my classmates were male, but where everyone just knew this is how you just get it done. Babies are a part of life. A woman needs to do what she needs to do to kind of, to get through that. And so as you tell that story, I see the grit and the rigor and just so much dedication and, and how much love can kind of come out of the people around you, right? When you're. But to be honest, it, it really wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. I mean, it sounds easy now, right? Because I'm kind of giving you a chronological order of things, but it really wasn't an easy decision. As I said before, I was in my first year of college and I was really, really scared. I mean, I don't know, of course, scared, nervous, anxious, all of it, because of course, that's not what my mother sent me to college to do, right? She sent me to get an education, not to come home with a baby. 
Yeah. Were you more scared of your parents at the oh my moment God. in the situation? Listen, listen. I told my mother before I went home. So, of course, I'm still in college. The nurse told me I was pregnant. Of course, I didn't believe her. She said, I took the test twice, honey. You're pregnant. I said, oh, oh, okay. Of course, bawling my eyes out, all of that. And then I had to. I wanted to tell my mother before I got home because I did not want to feel her wrath. My mother doesn't play around. I was actually saying that to Raman before you got on. My mother is no joke, right? So I said, okay, how am I going to tell her? I don't want to tell her in her presence because I may get a whooping, right? So I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that. So I said, let me call her before I get to New York City. So that's what I did. I called her and said, oh, what if I were to tell you that my friend got pregnant? Of course, I didn't say it was me, right? <laughs> mom, no, you I know, right? I know, I know, right? Mom. My friend got pregnant. I don't know what she's going to do. And my mother was like, well, she shouldn't have been having sex. I was like, shit. I was right. like, oh, right. oh, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then I wasn't the same night. It was another day that I called and said, remember that friend I told you about? It was actually me. I just found out that I'm pregnant. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she was just so disappointed. She told me she was disappointed. She said, I cannot believe you did this. I cannot believe you did this. I sent you to school to get an education. And of course, at the time, I was just like, man, how can she say this to me? But keep in mind, my mom had me when she was 16. Right. She got pregnant at 16, had me at 17. And so years later, of course, I can understand why she said, I'm disappointed. You want your children to be better than you. And so it was just really hard. And I'm just really glad that my friends stepped up because the way Middlebury set up, we have what you call a J term for January term. So you have fall, you have J term, which is you take one class in the month of January. Right. And then that's just the way it is. So you have a full fall semester, one class in a month of January and a full spring semester. So January is the month that my daughter would visit me. So she would come up for and stay the whole month. So of course, while I'm in class, somebody else got to babysit. So I had a couple of friends. I mean, they all stepped up and babysat for me. Right. So, okay. Who's not going to class right now? Well, I'm going to be in class until four and it ends at four, but I'm not going to get here till four fifteen. So who's going to be there in that little 15 minute window? So we made it work. We made it work. But she was only there the month of January, though. So she spent four years and I'm just really proud that I was able to walk across the stage with her because, again, it's one of these little private foo-foo schools. Babies is just not it's just it's not something that's part of their culture. Not that, And they don't want it to be right. It's just one of those things. So, yeah, it reminds me of. <laughs> This is going to sound really weird, but so we watched the show Downton Abbey, right? Oh, yes, I don't know I if you've seen Downton. it. Yes, I have. I have. I love it. And all these people, they have their babies, but you never see the babies. They just kind of hand them off. And it's just, yes. look, my wife and I, we had our kids <laughs> late in life. But as I've traveled through Asia and South America, babies are part of the societal fabric. It's not this kind of take them off camera, out of sight, yeah. out of mind. Because right. I mean, the thing, the thing I, it's not a regret, but it's when I do the math on how old my daughter's going, when my daughter, Carol, is your daughter's age, I'm going to be a much older man. <laughs> and I do have a little bit of regret. Man, I wish I had my kid earlier, but the societal constructs oh, that's right. don't totally. allow for that. Yeah, it's and, shameful. It's shameful. It's considered this very shameful thing and you don't get pregnant in college. It's just not what you do, right? And especially not in those schools. So I think if I was in, let's say, CUNY, the city university in New York, it would have yeah. been like, oh, she's pregnant. But when you go to a, a top 10 liberal arts school in the country, it's not seen that way, right? And it didn't help that I was from the South Bronx, right? It didn't help. <laughs> All of those dynamics together, oh, so you come to the college to get pregnant, really? Is that what we do here? Of course, nobody ever said that to me. It was just in my mind. 
that way, but no one ever said that to me. They treated me well. Actually, when my daughter came up to visit the months, the January month, they provided an extra bed in my room. I'm sure that's not something they want me to share, you know, publicly, but it is what it is. It's already happened. My daughter's like 28 now. So they provided an extra bed for me to have. And it was, it was great. It was great. I had a great time. And kind of related to that, Carol, were there things that you either did back then or even now? Do you ever do anything to fit in with everybody else? I would say yes. So I tried to, I tried the partying thing. It didn't work out for me in college. The partying thing. Parties, (laughs) it just never worked for me. I think I felt that strong sense of responsibility since I had my daughter freshman year. So she was born in December. After the nurse told me I was pregnant, I was like, well, I guess I don't have a choice. Of course, I thought anything else besides actually having her, I was going to go to hell. I was going to go to hell anyway because I I wasn't even married, right? So I'm like, well, I I definitely can't have an abortion because I'm going to go to hell. So I don't want to go to hell. And so, but wait, wait, hang on, hang on. In technically, you're already going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? At I'm that like, moment, is there is there like a double hell? You could go in, Carol. I know. I was going to go to double hell. Thank you, Robin, for that picture. I was going to go to double hell, going to hell because I was unmarried, and then going to hell because I had sex before I had before I got married. So you know, all of it together, I was going to double hell. It was going to be a hot, fiery place, and so. <laughs> Now you can let me lose my train of thought, Ramen. That's what I do. It's my job. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Was there anything I did to fit in? So, yes. I would say after I had my daughter in December, I was actually home in New York City. So, I went home. It was fall. Had the baby and stayed until spring, at the end of spring. And then, of course, my guidance counselor from high school, my life coach, as I told you, she convinced me to go back to school to finish my education, which I did. And I love her for that. I really tried to fit in by, okay, let me go to a couple of parties and let me try to do this. Let me try to do that. But it didn't really work out for me. I got drunk one time because, of course, I don't know anything about drinking because I didn't drink at home. I didn't do any of that stuff. I don't know if you know what jello shots are, right? Oh, yeah. Jello shots in college. And I was responsible for making the jello. But guess what I did? I didn't know you had to add water to it. It was just, it was, I know, I know. I, it's horrible. So it was just vodka and the Kool-Aid. That's all I did. I didn't know. And I was losing. I don't know anything about card games. So I was losing. And I was like, the, the room is spinning. This is really bad. And I thought I would never do this again. Never do this again. So I did that to kind of, oh, let me just play around. Everybody's playing a game. So the partying didn't work for me. The drinking thing did not work for me in college. I had one bad experience and that was good enough for me. Those sound like some amazing jello shots. <laughs> they were they were really bad because again, I was losing and there was no yeah. water. So I think because I was getting drunk so quickly, well, my husband now, he's my husband now. I met him in college. He was like, well, how did you make this? I was like, jello shots, hello, the vodka and the Kool-Aid. He said, well, how much water did you add? I'm like, oh, I was supposed to add water. He was just, he rolled his eyes. (laughs) I said, oh, I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. I was puking. I mean, it was bad. It was bad. So Carol, I've had the pleasure of meeting your kids, right? They're grownups like us. Yes. They're grown now. Yes. And how do you contrast some of those lessons learned in your experiences? You contrasted with your mom having a kid, like with not just the expectations, but kind of the, I don't know. How do you contrast your own experience? being so young, coming over, having to figure it out, make some really hard decisions with with the life they led because of you. Now, hopefully I'm answering the question correctly, but 
I don't, I don't even know what the question is, girl. I, I, I don't know for you both. <laughs> Being a parent, at least for me, I can only speak for myself, is the scariest thing in the world. I know that they're grown. I know that they're much older. But the thing is, I used to think, oh, as they got older, it'll be less scary because they're going to be on their own. They're grown. They're out of the house. But I've learned that that's not true. As they get older, you worry more. Because they're out of your house. You can't Carol, see don't them tell anymore. me that. Oh, I, know, I know, I know, I know. I, know. I, I, I thought, thought it would be over that. one day. Like, I know. Like, you know. I know. <laughs> no, it's because Carol, it's funny. What's funny? I don't know if I've said something like this. My daughter, she she's four and a half. And she's like, Daddy, what are you scared of? Because she thinks I'm not scared. I was like, I'm only scared of one thing. And it's anything happening to her. Like, that is literally the only thing yeah. I'm scared of these days. Yeah. And for you to tell me it gets worse. I know. I know. I shouldn't have said that. But that's my reality. It may not be for you. Oh, but I, I, said, think it's a- I think it's accurate, Carol. You were wise. Right? Because I, I just thought, oh, as they get older, they don't, they're not as dependent on me, right? But I've learned that as they get older, as you know what's happening in America now with the racial injustice, in, injustice. Like Wait, Carol, are you, telling me, are, are you telling me you're black? Yes, I am. I am. As, as somebody described it, I'm blackity, blackity, black. Yes, I'm very black. <laughs> I'm not African-American. I know some people use that term, but I'm not African-American because I was not born in this country. So I'm just black. Yeah, it has been crazy because every time my son leaves the house, he knows. I look at him and I said, what is your job, Tony? He said, I know, mommy. My job is to get here safely. Exactly. That is your job. You have one job when you leave this house and it's to get back here to me safely and alive. My daughter, I know she's grown, but she, because she was in New York City for a while, well, I didn't mention this piece. So she grew up with my mom in New York for a little bit because I was in school. I couldn't afford to have her with me. So she stayed with my mom until she was about 12 years old. Then she started living with me and my husband at about 12 or 13, which is interesting. I'm thinking about it now. It's the same age I came to the U.S. So that's interesting. Anyway, so she lived with my mom. Then she started living with us. And so, of course, growing up in New York City, she didn't have to learn how to drive, right? Because you'd have so much, your public transportation and everything else. But now she's learning how to drive. She's about to get her license. And, you know, I'm driving with her in the car. And I said to her, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday. I said, listen, I have no interest in burying a child. So you have to pay attention when you're driving. So again, that's a, just another example of even when they get older and they're grown and they're in their 20s, you still worry about them. So it's, it's not a one and done. Oh, you're 18. I don't understand how it works in this country. You're 18, so you got to be on your own now. I don't understand that. That's not the way I grew up. It's not that way in Antigua. You actually live, with, at least in my country, you live with your parents until you get married or until you get your own house. You don't leave because of this age thing. So hopefully I've answered that, your question. Hopefully I've answered it. But I worry about them more now than I did I did when they were younger. Because at least when they were younger, they were in my care or in our care. I can say, no, I need, I, no, you can't go out. You can't do this. You can't do that. And it's not, for me, it's not really the control. It's the worry. I call myself a she-hulk in my book, right? I'm a warrior. I'm just one of those worry parents. I mean, the thing I've always loved about our conversations, Carol, is there is no regret about any decision. I could be wrong, but you've just kind of embraced where your life takes you. And But so this is kind of a weird question to ask. If you could write a note back to young Carol, mm-hmm. 15, 16-year-old, maybe been in the Bronx, not yet gone to Middlebury, what would you tell her? You're going to have some mud thrown at you, but you're going to have to learn how to wipe the mud off, clean yourself off and get back on track. Because there are just some things you don't learn in college, Ramin and Sharon. There are just some things in life 
that college doesn't prepare you, that college can't prepare you for, right? College can't prepare you for this racist thing that's going to happen. College can't prepare you for if you're pregnant, here's how to do it, no matter what school you you attended, right? So college can't help a lot of stuff. And so I don't know. Why would I tell her? Yeah, that's what I would tell her. Whatever is thrown at you, you can literally wipe yourself off, clean up, and get back on track and make sure you have a, a group of people around you that, that will help you get back on track because you can't do it by yourself. This, this is one of those journeys, right, or, or this life that there's so many things we can't do alone. You've talked about this idea of polite silence and how you don't like that. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means? What is polite silence? Yeah, so polite silence, I actually got that those two words literally from Michael Eric Dyson. Do, are you aware of him? No, I'm not no. actually. Yeah, you, you can look him up afterward, Michael Eric Dyson. He actually came to visit the university where I work at now, some, maybe about seven, six, seven years ago. There was a racial incident that occurred on campus. And he came, you know how it is, universities, they invite somebody to give some great words and help to rally everybody together kind of thing. And he used those two words. And I wrote in my note at the time, if I were to tell my story about what, what occurred or what happened to me, that I would, that would be part of the title of the book, Polite Silence, because that's one of the things he mentioned. He said, people will literally walk around with this polite silence happening all around us. Now, at that particular time, he was talking about race and racism. But if we think about it, there's so much polite silence happening now, just in general. It could be about domestic violence. It could be about menopause. It could be about just any topic you could think about that's kind of taboo that folks don't want to talk about. It's really important to talk about certain things so that somebody else realizes, like, oh, you've been through that too? Okay, maybe I can make it. Because if you don't see anybody else making it, you don't think it's possible. Like, I've never seen anybody graduate from college who had a baby, I've never seen it. So I didn't know it was possible until I actually did it, right? And so that's really what it was for me. So polite silence, that's where I got the the term from. It's really about having a racist cartoon that was posted around campus about seven years ago, actually this month, the month of September. And what do you do in response and how do you really not get over, but how do you live with certain things? And how do you not remain silent? Because for me, I thought if I was politely silent, and it really wasn't about me, right? So I didn't want to lose my job. So that was one thing. But most importantly, at the time, my husband was going through the tenure process. And I did not want to do anything to stop his tenure. You see what I'm saying? So I'm like, well, if I say this, or if I say that other thing, if the media, of course, the media called and all of that stuff, I'm like, well, I can't talk to them. I can't tell them how I really feel because I don't want anything to disrupt or interrupt um, the process of that he would be going through to get tenure. And so I kept silent about things that I should not have kept silent about at the time. I'm not going to say I regret being silent, but I definitely take the opportunities now to speak up when I can. When you were writing your memoir, who were you writing it for? I thought in the beginning I was writing it for me. That's what I thought. I'm writing this as, as one of these cathartic experiences. I could get my own story out there. I wanted to be one of those situations where I wasn't silent, right? So that was part of stopping the silent or ending the silence. And then I learned as others started reading my book, 
I've had a lot of women, a lot of people actually coming up to me and said, man, you were telling my story. You were saying exactly how I felt or you were saying exactly about things that I remember growing up when I talk about growing up in Antigua. So, you know, if someone grew up in the South, I know it's not an island, but some of the Oh, it cultural is. Cultural things are similar, <laughs> right? I know you're from Alabama, right? Some of the cultural things are very similar depending on how you grew up. So people would say that to me like, oh man, you were telling my story. So I learned quickly that it really was not about me because in my book, I talk about being an immigrant coming to this country. Any immigrant, it doesn't matter where you came from, can identify and you know identify with coming to a brand new country. Yes, I spoke English, but I also speak what we call patois, which is a combination of like whatever it was. Of course, English. Some of the African, depending on where you came from in West Africa or whatever it was, some of that, some of those words as well as, you know, whether it was the Dutch, the French or the Spanish or whatever, whatever colonizer was around at the time. And so I speak Patois as well. And then the times that I mix Patois with English, with whatever. And so it was just, you know, it's so my book tells that story about being an immigrant in this, in, in this country and having an accent. Because as much as you speak English, for some reason, people would think that you're not speaking English. Even when I'm not speaking Patois, people are like, I don't really quite understand that. Well, that's because you're not listening. Especially, it all depends on where you are, right? So in New York, I didn't have that experience. So I don't know what you're saying. But if I'm in the Midwest where they don't get a lot of immigrants, there are not a lot of cultural differences. You don't have to listen as hard. That's right. They don't have to listen to what anybody else is saying. So it's like I'm talking, but they're not quite listening. They're trying to, they're not listening for the message. So I used to say, you've missed the message. Because you're focused so much on, on the accent, you've missed the message that I'm bringing to you. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I never knew my dad had an accent until I was like 10 or 11. And one of my friends said, I, I can't understand your dad, right? And, and I, you know, there was a little bit of shame that I regret having back then. But it fast forward to call it 18, 19, somewhere in college, we had this physics professor, thick Chinese accent, thick Chinese accent. and half of my friends, my quote unquote American friends couldn't understand them. And I could, and to be very clear, I can't hear through a Chinese accent. It was because I learned how to listen. I didn't know my dad had an accent, but somehow I was subconsciously listening through it. And I'm guessing your American friends in the Bronx were listening through it. Yeah. Plus there's so many immigrants in New York city, right? Whether you're coming from Dominican Republic, you're coming from Haiti, you're coming from Nicaragua. I mean, there's so many different types of people in New York. We're in the Midwest is very different. Yeah. So we had a guest, one of our first guests on the show, a recently new friend, daycare dad buddy, ER doctor, South African guy named Bevan. It was a pretty good revealing conversation about growing up in South Africa, coming over, even though he's colored in South Africa, he's black here. And fast forward a few months later, Bevan moved away and he's doing his ER residency in another state that is not as diverse as the Northeast. And First day on the job, his boss comes up to him and is like, hey, Bevan, were you on a podcast? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. And he told me this story. He's like, when that happened, I was like, oh, shit, I'm in so much trouble. Because <laughs> he told it real. He, Bevan is awesome. He's one of the best first guests you could have on a podcast. Yeah, he was fantastic. But in this moment, Bevan's like, oh, God, what did I do? I'm going to kill yeah, what him. did I say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... His boss was like, it was amazing. 
everyone here in the program has been listening to this. It really helps us understand where you're coming from. And <laughs> it was like, it comes back to this idea. Of, and it, I do think there is something in polite silence that there's a good and a bad to it. But like, I want all the secret racists to still be secretly racist or society. <laughs> I want our president to not say what's on his mind. But you kind of have to tell it like it is. You have to speak the truth. And I would even say that about the people on the other side of the vote for me. Speak your mind on your experience and let's have a conversation about it. Because I can't solve for your grievances if I'm not aware of them. And so much of the left in America, we weren't aware or we chose to be ignorant of the grievances in middle America. I just thought that was really, when that happened to Bevan, he was scared that it happened, but it actually wound up being a positive thing. Yeah. And I think that's the thing about polite silence, right? You think it's polite, but it's not. You think that when you're silent, that, okay, I'm not going to say anything. Let's say it's about domestic violence because nobody's either going to understand or... Yeah, it's so scandalous or, to talk or about shame it. Right? Or, yeah, yeah, it's so scandalous. You're right. That's a great word for it, to talk about it. So I'm not going to say anything. But you don't even know that there are about five other women or five other men or trans folks, right, who are waiting to hear your story so that they can say, you know what, she did it. And I don't have to be silent anymore. Here's how she overcame that particular situation. So I can overcome as well. You know what I mean? And so that's what polite silence is for me. It's really not speaking up, but knowing that you should, regardless of the topic, because you know, deep down is the right thing to do. You know, deep down is the right thing is to say something or do something. But for some reason, whether it's society, like you were saying before, Ramin, about there's some societal things really happening where you feel like, mm, I can't really say that, or should I say it? Or you don't want to get in trouble, or just like Bevin was saying, oh my gosh, what did I really say? But of course, at the time, he wasn't thinking about being polite, politely silent. That's not what he was thinking about. He was just thinking about speaking his truth. And I think there's something about speaking your truth authentically that will resonate with people. And I think that, at least for me in my job, that's what makes me, where students would say that they'd really like speaking with me and coming to me with anything. I just give advice sometimes. Sometimes it's beyond work hours because I'm truthful and authentic with my students. I think sometimes people get, as I would say to them, I would say to students, don't get it twisted because you see that assistant dean title that's on there. Because at the end of the day, nobody cares what an assistant dean is. They care that they're getting help regardless of the situation. I don't Titles are huge in the Midwest. Maybe they're huge in the Northeast, and I didn't really realize it, but they're just really big here. Like if you say your title, all of a sudden people pay attention. I'm just like, no, that's not what I want you to pay attention to. I just want you to be a kind human being, period, regardless of someone's title. You should put that on your business card. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good tagline. I just I like want it. you to be a good human being. I just want you to be a good human being. <laughs> <laughs> Great. I mean, is that so hard to ask for, for real? Like, seriously. <laughs> I know. It's so It's so basic. Carol, you're so much fun. And we've covered a lot of ground. So I'd like for us to now move into speed round oh, as part of our discussion. Speed. Are you ready for speed yes, rounds? I'm ready for it. All right. What's one thing about you that no one expects? Oh, gosh. I'm an introvert. You are an introvert. <laughs> See, you didn't expect that. I you're did not expect that. You're not laughing you're with me right now. You're laughing at me. No. I was going to say, I was going to say, well, talk to that. Prove it. What do you think? No, and we've talked to a lot of guests that say that. And 
but I, I guess am. The question, what makes you think that about yourself? I, okay. I'm not saying you're not right. I just want to know. No, no, no. Why you okay. think Here's yeah. why I think that because I'm not really good on really large crowds and I just don't care for it. Right. I like small groups. I like, it's still like the conversation we're having now. I love this. But if for me to be on a big stage, I'm going to be so nervous. I mean, I'll do it because it has to get done. But I'm so super nervous. But then when I'm done with it, but I do these speaking engagements all the time. I do high school graduations that I speak at and all these things. But I'm so nervous before I do it. And it, because it's not just this natural thing for me, right? I'm, I'm really an introvert. I like to kind of, I'm the person at the party that sits back and watch other people. I'm a people watcher. I love it. I like to see how other people treat others. And I'm just like, mm-hmm, you can't get to treat me like that. I see how you're talking about her. <laughs> uh, I'm that person in the back. 100%. I, I totally relate to that, actually. <laughs> so, Carol, can you recommend a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Okay, you're going to really laugh at this. But I really love The Incredible Hulk. The, the original uh, Incredible Hulk. You wouldn't like me if I'm angry, yeah. Mr. McGee, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Don't make me <laughs> angry. You know, something like that. I really love The Incredible Hulk because I see it as, okay, we all as people transform into something else when things ain't working out, right? And the Hulk is really big and protective. And I think I had to really strip it down to the finest thing to figure out, okay, why do I really love the Hulk? I think I love the Hulk because I was watching it while I was pregnant with my daughter. And at the time, I think I, all I needed was to, was for somebody to protect me from all of it. I don't know, whatever it was, I just needed somebody to protect me and make me feel loved and make me feel like I was needed and wanted. And I didn't have that at the time. And so the incredible Hulk just, he was the man for me. I'm just like, oh, he's so big. He's green. Okay, who cares if he's green? He's just big. And he's Ferrigno. Yeah. All right. And he's so nice. And he's going to carry you. And he's got, my mind was messed up at the time, but you know how it is. <laughs> you, and you mentioned earlier something about being She-Hulk as well. Yes. So think, yeah. Oh, no, honey. I'm a She-Hulk with my kids. I don't play around. <laughs> I don't play around. Somebody try to do something to my kids, it'll be the last thing that person does. I'm not playing around. They're putting a She-Hulk show on Disney+. Plus. They just cast it, actually. Are they really? Ooh. Yeah. See, nobody told me I would have been in it. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> She-Hulk. Like, I want to transform. Not want to, but I think I do. I think I'm a really nice person and I'm a caring person and I'm a loving person and I'm kind, but you do something to my kids or my husband or my mama. Oh, forget it. It's a wrap. Now that's how you see the South Bronx really comes out of me. That's where sea right. lover comes in, Sharon. Sea <laughs> lover will come out every day. That's my she-hulk. Sea lover is my she-hulk. It's so great. <laughs> what is your favorite mom dish? Oh, okay. So I love, and I tried to make it here. It's good, but there's something about my mother's touch that's so much better. So we make this thing in my country, Antigua, that's called fungi, F-U-N-G-I. But it's really cornmeal. It's cornmeal that you, first you boil a pot of water or half a pot of water, and you pour the cornmeal in the pot and you just stir it un until it gets thick. And you just stir it, stir it, stir it until it gets, it's just thick. And then you shape it into a bowl. And I just love that. So it's cornmeal. You can add a little bit of sugar to it to sweeten it if you want to, or you can add some okra. I love okra. They're so slimy and nice. So I can have fungi with salt fish. So do you know what? Some Spanish people call it bacalao, but it's really salted fish. 
It's salted like it's fish. Salt, salt cod, usually. So, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's what exactly what it is. It's cod fish, but it's just salted. So we boil it, boil it, boil it until it's not as salty anymore. And then we add onions, tomatoes, tomato sauce. You kind of add a sauce to it and you kind of pour it over the salt fish. And then on the side, we have what you call, we call it chop up, but it's not. It's vegetables. So we have eggplant, eggplant, spinach, and okra together. You cook it all together, then you mash it up so it's nice and just nice and gooey, just nice. And so you have the fungi, you have the chop up, and you have the salt fish. That's my favorite dish of all time. Oh, man. I used to hate this question because it made me so hungry. And yes. fortunately, we're recording it an hour before I have to cook dinner. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good, though. I mean, it's not a typical, oh, of course, it's not a typical American dish, but it's so good. What is your least favorite food? I'm not big on desserts. I'm just not a dessert person. Okay, so that's one one small part. But you know what I'm not liking as much anymore? I'm just not liking, I'm just not feeling McDonald's anymore. I used to like McDonald's. <laughs> I'm just not feeling it. There's something about it just... The relationship's over? Yeah. The, we've gotten a divorce. So yes, the relationship is over. <laughs> the relationship is over with McDonald's. I can't do it. There's a large window of time, call it age of 10 to age of... 30 something where I was very anti fast food and now I have oh. a child. <laughs> right. So you're right. fast food now? No, I'm not. I'm still against it, but just the joy in her eyes when we get a Wendy's Happy Meal. <laughs> it's unlike any other, right? I know. Yes. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm just not feeling, I think maybe because I'm home now and I'm. Yeah. yeah 100%. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say I'm cooking. My husband cooks, right? You know, Ramen, he's a chemist, right? So he likes to cook. And who am I to tell him not to cook, right? So my husband cooks. I just clean. I do the laundry. <laughs> he does everything else. Like I'm, I'm not exactly sure what I do half the time. <laughs> good balance. You make a lot of podcasts. That's what you do. <laughs> I'm, I'm a sous chef. I'm a sous chef. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's great. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview on a podcast, Carol? Okay, so I don't want you all laughing at me. This is going to sound horrible. But you know who I would love to talk to? Michael Bolton. Do you know who he is? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just, when I just a man know. loves a woman, Carol. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah the I singer? I was like, wait, really? The I singer? Know, I, know, I know. Of course, I tell my other friends, <laughs> mainly my black and my white friends, they're like, you like who? Michael Bolton. <laughs> who likes him? I'm like, listen, I like Michael Bolton. I would love to talk to him about some of his songs because, you know, they've gotten me through some things, you know, especially when I was pregnant with my daughter and kind of. The other person that I would love to talk to, I can't because he's dead and gone. I would love to talk to Tupac. I would love to have a conversation with him. His songs literally saved my life. Like, you know, Brenda's Got a Baby, Keep Your Head Up. Because, of course, all of those songs kind of came out when either I was pregnant or I already had my daughter and she was really young. And, you know, when you try to find some kind of peace or comfort or motivation, it was just in Tupac's songs that I, not all of them, of course, but in those two songs that I got just some, some kind of light at the end of the tunnel. So I would have loved to talk to him to tell him, you know what, this your songs did did a lot for me. What was the other song? Brenda's Got a Baby's One. What was the other one? Keep Your Head Up. Keep Your Head Up. Unless that's the same song and I don't. <laughs> I think it's two different songs. <laughs> yeah. So last question, Carol, and this has just been way too much fun. It takes me back to visiting Cincinnati and hanging out with you. <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean to you? To me, it means change. Right. So the modern minority to me means nothing is the same. 
It can't be the minority from 30, 40, 50 years ago. It can't be from my, my mother's generation. It has to be something new, something different. It has to be a change. It has to be, I know this is going to sound really cliche, but it has to be that end polite silence kind of thing. Because I think our parents kind of grew up in that there are just some things you don't say. There's some things you don't mention. And being a modern minority now, that means we don't have the luxury of not saying anything. We don't have the luxury of not speaking up. We have to speak up and speak out. Or if nothing is going to change, nothing is going to happen. So that's, that's what that means to me, to speak up and to speak out and to end polite silence. That's great. Well, Carol, I always have fun talking to you. And I'm so glad my sister reminded me that I'm supposed to have you on this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Honey, I never thought anybody wanted to talk to me about some kind of podcast. So it was really good. <laughs> I'm like, a podcast? What? Me? You want to talk to me? Well, hopefully the person would understand what I'm saying. But you come from an immigrant family. So I don't have to try to... We're all immigrants, Carol. We're all you know, immigrants. Yeah, Carol. yeah, yeah. So I don't have to try to be something that I'm not, which is I'm not, I'm not very good at that. So I try not to put myself in situations where I can't be authentic. And it's, and it's like just going to work. Like I wear my head wraps to work. I don't feel like, oh, I can't speak this way when I get to work. I, people just got to live with it. I don't, I don't got time for foolishness. So <laughs> that's just not what I do. You're such a joy, Carol. I wish we could Thank do jello so much, shots Sharon. together. We will. We will. No, but this time, if we Carol's not making them, Carol's not making them. Just make sure there's water this time. Just make sure there's water. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you both so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi, mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now, here's a preview of our next episode. I reached a crisis of conscience. Over three years, I watched this young man progressively get worse in terms of behavior and consequences. It ended up that he was charged as an adult for felony murder. And I'm literally holding this kid's hand at the age of 16 as he's to be charged as an adult and face a good amount of his life in prison as a system. Where did we go wrong? I felt like I was part of the problem and not part of the solution. I remember having this conversation with my father and just said, I got to find something else to do because I can't keep doing this. This is going to kill me. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segal. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.